welcome back to Ars Arcanum, an exploration of Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. I'm Nora. I've been sick this week, and I'm joined by Mark. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm not sick. And Autumn. <laughs> I'm also not sick. Well, I'm sick. Yeah, so the the clock is ticking on me being sick, but for right now, I'm good. Yeah. Y'all been reading books? I've read a little bit. I've been reading books. Yeah, I, oh, I've seen some of the books you've been reading, Nora. I'm excited to hear what you have to say. <laughs> uh, I'll go first, because I guess mine is going to be pretty brief. Um, I read the second volume of Monster, finally circled back around to that. Uh, that's fucking great. That's all I want in fiction. So I'm excited to read 16 more volumes of that. I may be like... For, for people who don't know Monster... I met Nina, um, uh, there were, uh, big dramatic incidents around Nina, um, and around Dr. Tenma. He, he's going through it. He's having a bad time. Um. God, I love him. <laughs> but, like, yeah, I don't know how productive it is to, like, really get into, like, talking about Monster. I talked about the first volume a couple weeks ago, and, um... I will I will finish it in the near future, hopefully. Um, I don't know that I want to do, like, a volume-by-volume volume discussion as I, as I keep reading it for the podcast. I, or, I mean, so. I, like, okay, I am kind of interested in your volume-by-volume volume thoughts, but I guess that would spoil... Yeah, if you've got questions, I've, I've got answers. Y yeah, um, but I guess if we were to have, like, a spoiler discussion about Monster, that would also spoil Nora fully, right? Yeah, I'm definitely not going to read this. Yeah, this is not a Nora thing. Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, we'll do, we'll do. Um, it's also been like three or four days, so I'm just I'm gonna collect my thoughts a little bit, I guess. Um, yeah, that's fair. We can always do a bonus episode. We've done a bonus episode for this podcast before. We have. I don't want to do. Let's just let's just talk about it now. Let's just talk about Volume Two of Monster right now okay. a little bit. Um, so. <clears throat> Volume 2, we're introduced to... Okay. End of Volume 1, we meet, like, a more grown-up Johan, um, who is a 19-year-old kid who is evidently going around just doing a bunch of murders. Um, he's also... And Dr. Tenma... He's also yes, one of, like, three go. hot people in the world. <laughs> that's so true <laughs> and the one of the other one both of the other ones are major characters they're Tenma and Nina <laughs> um yeah this is a, a thing about Urasawa's drawing that makes it striking when Johan shows up is that like a lot of ugly motherfuckers running around Urasawa's world uh, <laughs> I, and to be fair some of them are definitely like I shouldn't maybe say he's one of only three hot people in the world because i think some of urasawa's like kind of craggy bulbous faced people are like hot in the way that someone who would be described that way could be hot but he's one of only three mm -hmm. like beautiful people in the world yeah he's one of three like this is an anime like protagonist drawing yeah you know? yeah um um johan is going around just doing bunches of a bunch of like really heinous vile murders um that Dr. Tenma feels fucked up about because um you know Tenma saved Johan's life 10 years or er, 9 years ago um um Tenma tries to go and tell um 
the police about it, but the police are like, you're making shit up. We we all think that you did these murders because you directly benefited from them and you are tied to all of these. Uh, and you're just making up a, like, fantasy 19-year-old who <laughs> um, to do these, like, to be a scapegoat. You're making this up. They don't believe him. Um, we are then introduced to Nina, Johan's twin sister that, um, uh, like, Dr. Tenma also helped nine years ago. Um, and she is living a just, like, pretty normal life of, like, a, you know, 19-year-old, like, just starting university, um, like, intense autumn vibes as she's like, oh, yeah, I, like, you know, go to my, uh, Aikido classes every week, and I, you know, have 20 credit hours, and, um, I'm, like, getting A's in all my classes, and I have a job, um, just, like, that doesn't sound like you. I don't know what. <laughs> and she like she rushes into her saying? class late, and the professor is like, mm, "Can anyone answer my question? No, if none of you can answer it, you're all going to get extra homework." And she's like, "Ah, oh, uh, I I know the answer." While she's like bowing completely all the way over. And this is in Germany, so yeah. bowing all the way completely over is like not a normal thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> um. And, yeah, so she starts to get, like, emails from Johan. Um, this is in the 90s. This is 95 or 96, I want to say. Um, she's getting emails from a mysterious man who's like, I, I want to see you soon. And um, she thinks it's like a secret admirer. Um, whereas Tenma, like, investigating into, like, you know, what Johan has been up to the last nine years starts to think that Johan is trying to find Nina. So Tenma is also, like, trying to find Nina to, like, protect her because he thinks that Johan is going to abduct her and do something terrible. He doesn't even... He doesn't really know what he's afraid of, um, but he is very scared. Same. Um, Same. <laughs> <laughs> um, he teams up with a newspaper guy. Um, who also does not believe him, but just has a heart of gold, um, and, um, wise words about working oneself to death, um, and he teams up with this newspaper guy, and they find Nina, like, basically on the day that Johan is coming to collect her, and, um, you know, like, uh, I'm trying to remember how exactly all this plays out. Basically, um, like, newspaper guy stays with Nina's family. Tenma goes to get Nina from somewhere else. Um, Johan murders newspaper guy and Nina's, like, adopted family. Meanwhile, like, Tenma and Nina are also almost, almost taken by, like, some guy who seems to be, like, under Johan's spell or something, almost. Um, like, is very behaving very strangely and, like, attacks them, but they're, like, because she takes Aikido classes, she's able to, like, ward him off. Um, they run away, um, and Tenma is, like, like, they find, like, a cabin in the woods, and, like, Tenma's like, stay here, and I'm gonna go into town and, like, get us some supplies. And while, um... Uh, while he's in town, like, the police are looking for both of them. The police are, like, 
uh, on Johan's side that, like, Johan seems to have some connections with the police, um, and, um, while he's in town, like, Nina seems to give him the slip. So now, Tenma is alone, uh, and confused, and just kind of has to go back to his day job of being a doctor, which he is not invested in anymore. And that's where we leave off, uh, volume two, if I remember right. Um, it's fucking great. <laughs> oh my god, it's so good. Yo, the, I wanna, the thing that Johan, Johan sends Nina an email, and it's like 1996, mm-hmm. right? So she's really excited to mm-hmm. get an email. Um, <laughs> and what he says in the email is, I was born to cover you with flowers. Um... Right. And so she's like, holy shit, I have a really, like, princely secret admirer, and the secret is you actually have a murderous twin brother. (laughs) God! (laughs) I wish I had a murderous twin brother. I wish I had a murderous twin brother who sent me emails. <laughs> I wish someone. I ha, I wish more human beings sent me emails. Yeah. Yeah, I get emails from robots all day. The only emails I ever receive from human beings are about podcasts, which you can send to exportaudiopodcast at gmail dot com. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's just it's fucking great. It's like the other like part of this is that it's like you know. Set in Germany just after, like, the wall falls and, um, you know, like, there's all this, like, interesting stuff about Tenma being, uh, sort of an outsider because he's Japanese, um, and the sort of, like, you know, politics of, like, where are we going now that the wall is down, you know, um, and it's just... It's just my favorite shit. I just like when there's like a noir story about like gruesome evil murders um and like it's set against like some like you know um uh, like a like a moment of great change. Like a lot of great noir movies from the 40s are like you know all this like grim detective shit is happening and also we're all like just coming out of the shadow of war and that's like what the movie is about actually you know um it's good it's good <laughs> um also like the way that urasawa draws everything is just fucking incredible because um it's just like these kind of like bulbous like kind of cartoony faces and then every now and then someone like johan shows up who is like beautiful and then like, it's just constant, like, lovingly, the most detailed, like, renderings of, like, German streets in the 90s, um, like, with just the most detail in the world, and it's always raining. Every single day in this fucking comic is raining. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Bless you. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's... Oh, it's... That's most... I love it so much. Um... I'm really the the uh the sort of like uh you know post uh Berlin Wall and like kind of um like what what is Germany now like what are we doing in this society now that like this huge change has happened stuff that that is like mm-hmm. a major 
through line, I would say, of the whole thing. And I'm, I'm very curious about how it, it strikes you as it continues. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, it, I, I do not think that, like, I don't know what exactly I would say, like, the politics of Monster are, because I think mm -hmm. it is using that framework as you say, in much the way that, that noir does, right? And so, like, in a similar way, it's, like, a lot of noir, you might not be able to, like, pin down what exactly is this trying to say about, like, World War II and, like, the politics of, like, the post-war yeah. period. But but yeah. it's still saying something about that. It's just that it's not, like, an explicit, like, here's what we think about how the Cold War is now statement. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, um, another example is, like, Blade Runner is, like, this, you know, existing in this world, and, like, you're flying around in cars with, like, these huge ads, and, like, there is a real powerful, like, anxiety in, like, the world of Blade Runner about, like, um, like, China as, like, an economic superpower in the world, like, that is, like, a thing that permeates, um, a lot of Blade Runner aesthetics, you know, is, like, this fear of, like, um, various Asian countries, I should say, like, getting some sort of cultural foothold in the U.S., and I know it's, Blade Runner does not say things about this, but it is, like, an important part of the backdrop of, like, the things that Blade Runner is saying, I guess, um, it's, like, an important, like, um, mood atmosphere i mean it's saying it without saying it because yeah. it is part of the set dressing yeah it's like the, the street food that you get is ramen mm -hmm. not like burger in, not, well i don't know how a hot dog i don't know how classic in like a new york uh street food a burger is i meant to say I mean, a, hot, a hot, dog. hot dog or like a like a, a, a uh, uh, yeah i think the classic yeah. like thing is is the slice the new york slice yeah I was getting there. That's my final smash. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I'm excited. Also, I read the like um, inside cover of Volume Three, and it's like, what is Orphanage Five One One? What is Johan like? Government test program, something. I'm like, oh shit, Volume Three is where it's gonna really kick off, I guess. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I volunteer fire department. <laughs> I watched um, the anime of Monster, and that was mm -hmm. like probably like the second anime I ever watched all of in my life, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so because I watched that anime with like the 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 um, subs, the Japanese audio. Um, the phrase "Go Ichi Ichi Kinderheim" is like in my head forever because that's Kinderheim Five Eleven in Japanese, and that's the name. I'm, of the I'm impressed that I actually got the number right because I was like in the moment I was like, I think it's five one one. Yeah, I think it's. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's a uh, that's just a that's never gonna leave my head. <laughs> <laughs> Kinderheim is this is good. this is um, also me with. Uh, because I watched, you know, Dragon Ball and Naruto and Sailor Moon when I was, like, a kid. Uh, and then, like, I think Fullmetal Alchemist was, like, the first anime I watched, like, as an adult. who's like, I'm going to watch an anime series. Um, which means that, like, once a day, I'm just, like, you know, doing dishes, driving the car or something. And 
I just think to myself, Full Metal Alchemist. <laughs> you do dishes every day? <laughs> um, but yeah. What did you two read? Well, um, I uh, started uh, with Ben. In this case, Ben's reading to me uh, The Quantum Thief. Uh, which has been like a mm. really interesting thing to start reading right after I finished Blindsight, because it's like in some ways very doing something very similar because it's also like a uh, you know kind of like playing in like the hard sci-fi space and it's very clearly written by like a like a tech guy you know um, like mm. it is all about this world that has been like deeply shaped by quantum computing. Um, and like, uh, this kind of like vaguely cyberpunk sense of like post-humanity, you know? So like people have an enormous ability to like upload their minds into different bodies and like edit their memories and stuff like that. Um, so like in that sense, it's a little bit like it, it, it's kind of shaking hands with blindsight, right? They're playing in the same genre at the same time could not be more tonally different. It is so like exciting and dramatic and uh-huh. like horny. Um, I mean, it is like a it is a, a keeper. Um, the whole premise, like the, the first thing that it starts from, is it's this guy whose name is um, Jean Le Flambert, and he's like a gentleman thief. And he he is a gentleman thief because when he was a kid, he read a book about some like. Lupin type character and was like, okay, I'm going to become that. And he named himself that and he became that. (laughs) And he's in a a really fucked up prison where you are uh, put through the prisoner's dilemma over and over and over and over again. Um, Do you two know what the prisoner's dilemma is? Uh, I've definitely heard this word before. Remind me what it is. So this is a concept in game theory. The idea is that the sort of classic version is you've got two people in prison and they are like, they're both like criminals who like worked together, right? So they have dirt on each other. And the cops are trying to get them to rat on each other. If they... Okay. And there's like an outcome matrix, right? So there's like, there's guy A and guy B. And they both have the choice to uh, defect, that is, like, to betray the other guy, or to cooperate, which is to work with the other guy and not betray him. Um, so cooperate means, like, keeping your lips zipped. Snitches get stitches. <laughs> the, the, like, positive social <laughs> interaction in this case is not to talk to the cops. Um, <laughs> anyway, and so uh, the, the, like, matrix here is if... One of them betrays the other one, and the other one cooperates. So if guy A defects and guy B cooperates, or the other way around. The one who defects wins big. Because he's, you know, he's, the, he is, he's turned state's evidence. He's going to get out of prison. And the one who got, right. when he got betrayed, he's fucked. If they both cooperate, they're both doing pretty well. They're not necessarily both going to be doing as well as the guy who stabbed the other guy in the back. But, like, this is, importantly, this is the outcome that, if you think about it in numerical terms, actually works out the best for both of them considered as a whole. Um, So it's like, uh, that is the outcome that, 
if you're thinking about this from the perspective where you care about both guys, that is actually objectively better. And if they both defect, then they're also both they're fucked. screwed. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I forget, there's like actual numbers on this and I can't remember precisely how they work out. But the, the point is, this is a, uh, a kind of a problem where it's like, well, okay, what is the strategy that you approach this with if you are like a selfish person? And so you're not actually trying to save the other guy. But at the same time, you also know that if you cooperate and he cooperates, it's actually going to be better for you. And so you're really hoping that he cooperates. So you, the idea on some level is that if this is iterated, you and oh. the other guy will both learn over time, okay, it's probably going to work out better for me if I cooperate because that will encourage a perception from him that it's better to cooperate and then we'll both work together and we'll probably both be okay. But at the same time, if you know that a sort of social expectation that you're both going to cooperate has been established, that's the perfect time for you to defect, right? <laughs> so the concept of this prison is that, you know, it is like this sort of cyberpunk mind prison. So they can like fully create an, an, an environment for you. And you are just constantly iterated through this with like randomly selected other prisoners in like random different kind of like skins of this situation, right? So sometimes you're literally prisoners and they're having cops interrogate you. Sometimes you're just like encountering another guy and you both have guns. Sometimes you're playing chicken, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's all kinds of different ways to frame this. And you just do this over and over and over again. It's, it's supposed to eventually teach you to always cooperate, right? Um, right. And somebody breaks him out of this prison and is like, hey, I heard you're a master thief. I need you to steal something. I have total control over your body and I can feel everything that you experience. So don't try any funny stuff. Now we have to go recover your memories so you can actually continue being the master thief that I want you to be. Um, okay. It's so like, it's a, it's a, it's just this like wild adventure. And like, Jean is like such a, he, he is like a gentleman thief. We're on chapter five and it's become very clear that he's a leg guy. Um, like. <laughs> it took me a second to understand what you meant. But. By leg guy. I mean, like he's mentioned mm -hmm. women's legs a couple times and I'm like, all right, he's interested uh -huh. in this. Um, there's also a point where there's like an action scene. Like I mentioned, this woman who rescued him, her name's Miele and she wants to like use him, right? One of the ways that she has control over him is that she can directly experience everything he's experiencing. So, like, it's hard for him to, like, try to escape or anything. But at one point, they're in, like, a combat situation. He's like, oh, fuck. She's completely consumed in her, like, combat, like, sort of sweet thing. And But, but like, I really need to get her attention because I have a plan to get us out of this. So he stabs himself in the hand with a giant chunk of sapphire broken from the ship. And she's like, why the fuck did you do that? And as he's like, <laughs> as he's like passing out from the pain, he's like, I have a plan. Oh, <laughs> it's amazing. I'm having a great time. That sounds great. This sounds really fucking good. I haven't even mentioned there's a detective character. Uh, there's a society which feels sort of um, like it's meant to be like immediately post-revolution France, but also it's a place where like 
everyone has total control over their personal information. Um, there's like a clan of uh, people who have preserved the ancient tradition of gaming. Um, <laughs> I will resurrect the art of gaming. <laughs> yeah, they, they suck. They seem like horrible. <laughs> um, like, I don't know what they are, like, sort of like, uh, I guess politically, like they're clearly a politically significant faction. I don't really have a strong sense of the like, political faction stuff here, but like just interpersonally, they sound awful. Um, yeah. The Quantum Thief by Hanu Rajniemi. I recommend it. So far, anyway. Sounds pretty good. Nora? Yes, my love. What have you been reading? I mentioned this last time, but I finished The Black Company. Mm -hmm. It's fucking good. Is it? It's fucking good. Okay. It gets less weird as you get accustomed to the structure of the book because it's seven chapters long and each chapter is just really long. Uh, okay. Each one is focused on a specific character that they encounter or do something to or with. Um, <clears throat> and they're sort of like ex excerpts taken out of the histories of this mercenary company in this fantasy setting. And so it's this story about this rebellion against the lady who is this... Okay, so. A long time ago, there was the Dominator. And the Dominator and his wife, the lady, took the true names of ten of the most powerful sorcerers. And in that rite of taking, they turned those ten into their, like, lieutenants and their slaves. And then they conquered the world. But then the White Rose appeared, and she defeated... The Dominator and the Lady. I'm learning so many vocabulary words. I know. And they're all good. I Here, let me... Real quick. Let me just read you the ten who were taken. Um, they are... Soulcatcher, the Limper, the Howler, Shapeshifter, Stormbringer, the Hanged Man, Bone Nasher, Nightcrawler, Moonbiter, and the Faceless Man. Now, I don't think... Okay. I don't think you can name one of them Stormbringer. Why is that? That's already Nora. You already read that book. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't read it yet. But oh, I thought um, is Stormbringer not in the Michael Moorcock book that you read? Uh, Stormbringer. Might be? I have only Stormbringer is the 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 sword that Elric. Am I like fucking? That's yes. Stormbringer is the sword, and it's also one of the short stories, and it's also the name of one of the compilation books. Okay, and it's also the name of a couple of the comics. I, I'm okay. just saying, but I, have... I don't think when was when was the Black Company written? Eighty <clears> three. <throat> yeah, you can't you <laughs> cannot call something Stormbringer <laughs> in a fantasy novel in 1983. That's like naming your wizard Gandalf. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also Nightcrawler is here. <laughs> That's also funny, yeah. And it's 83. <laughs> the X-Men were hugely popular with the exact sort of people who would be reading this book. In, in fairness, though, the, anyway. the word Nightcrawler, like, pre-exists, you know? Like, yeah. but, but I agree, yeah. that's also funny. <laughs> um, so they fought the White Rose, who just defeated the Dominator and the Lady and the Ten who were taken, and sealed them underground in their graves. Now the lady has returned, and she's left her her ball and chain behind, 
The Dominator, still on the ground. Fuck that guy. It's my turn now. Mm. Girl boss time. I'm taking the take in for me. And we're going to rebuild this empire. And so this is the story of a rebellion against that empire. And uh, told through the Black Company, one of the most renowned uh, mercenary companies. Very ambiguously sized. At one point, it's mentioned that they were much larger than usual at 3,000. And at one point, it's mentioned that they've dwindled down to 1,000. It's very unclear how many people are in the company at any time. Mm. But they're always, you know, facing impossible odds and winning the day, or at least surviving. Mm. And as one of the the last free companies, they have the annals of the Black Company, which are the records and histories of the company dating back hundreds of years. So the POV character in this book is Croker, the surgeon, who is also the analyst. And his job is to record the things that happen, the momentous events, for the history of the company. And he does so. And they are recruited by Soulcatcher, who is one of the ten, to uh, be his, like, uh, key unit. <clears throat> and as time goes on, I keep hearing these rumors about, oh, the rebels are still looking for their white rose, the reincarnation of the great hero, because the, the prophecy is coming. Um, oh, I love when the prophecy is it, coming. We meet this... Oh, yeah. <laughs> we meet this guy, Raven, whose introduction is that he kills his wife and takes her ring back. Uh, and then scares off all of her other lovers who were with her. And then he joins the Black Company. Uh, first of all, his name is Raven. He's mm -hmm. pretty cool. Mm -hmm. He's very stoic and moody. And never shows emotion unless he wants to. Uh, he's also the best at killing. Important. He does this trick where he makes a knife appear in his hand and starts cleaning his fingernails with it. <laughs> That's his go-to like nervous tick. Um, and he and Croker have this thing where... Um, they hate when kids are in danger. Tough guys. I do too. Tough guys often have this trait. Um. Um, yes, and so they save this girl, this little girl, from being like assaulted by another Taken's army, and um, sort of adopt her as as Raven's like little sister, daughter slash mascot situation <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, this feels a little familiar makes me think of something i read recently <laughs> um and she doesn't speak so the two of them are always talking in sign language and there's another there's one of the three wizards of the black company named silent you'll never guess what his deal is uh he's he a real talker he doesn't talk no no way He's also the meanest of their mages. No way. Uh, and so... Um, oh, snake eyes. Eventually, Croker starts having also bonding with the girl, whose name is Darling. Um, and they, they go on a bunch of different adventures, and sort of... There's a lot of infighting amongst the Taken for, for power and glory uh, among their ranks with the lady. Um... And then that starts escalating, like a lot, and it turns into, oh, some of these guys are actually still working for the Dominator, who's controlling them from underground. 
And so it turns into this whole, like, split, and there's all this infighting, and Soulcatcher is there as the guy who's like, well, I'm gonna twist this to my own ends, to, like, dethrone the lady, but also leave the, d the Dominator in the ground so that I'm left as the only one standing. This doesn't work. She gets, she gets her head chopped off. Oh, no. Yeah. Um... Anyway, the lady is kind of like Sauron, a little bit. Okay. She's like, you can't look directly at her most of the time. And mm -hmm. she's like, she has complete control over how you perceive her. And when she like looks through your soul and interrogates everything that you are, uh, like Croker describes like the only thing he can remember with any certainty is this great yellow eye that just like strips him bare and, like, he has no secrets left. I'm nodding. Yeah. That does sound pretty cool. Um, <laughs> she's great. Um, one of the things they start doing is, like, as Taken start dying, uh, the lady starts converting rebel leaders into new Taken. And then that's that leads into the revelation of, oh, they're, like, she's creating her own so that uh, they're not agents of the Dominator. Um, and in the end, it is not, it is like, it is sort of revealed that Darling is the White Rose. Oh. So Raven, Raven and Darling scoot. They get out of there. Okay. Because the rebel army is lost. They had a fake White Rose at the final battle of this like child on a horse glowing. Uh, and she, she's just like a kid that they picked up and tried to turn like, turn into a symbol so that they could have the morale to, to win the final battle. And it didn't work. Um, this is just a really great, uh, great book. There's the two wizards, One-Eye and Goblin, who are always bickering. And they do, like, magic duels where they're like, okay, I'm going to summon a bunch of little guys made of shadows that look like you, and they're all going to start kissing a horse's ass. <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> that's then... so much stupider than, uh, like, I, when you said, like, wizards doing duels, I was like, oh, yeah, like, the classic wizards duel. You, like, turn into different shit, but that's so funny. I love it. And then, oh, now I'm going to turn your guys in. I'm going to, like, summon a bunch of, like, like, locusts to eat them all up and then spell, like, uh, you're gay in the air. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a lot of that. Um, I will say if anybody is interested in reading this, uh, there's like content warnings for uh, obviously the, the violence and stuff surrounding this type of thing. It's, it's very like straightforwardly presented. And also there's a lot of sexual assault uh, sort of throughout the book um some uh there's like an interrupted one of those regarding darling and mm -hmm. um there was something else there's like there's like one slur also mm -hmm. regarding uh you know mental uh faculty of a character okay um but i ultimately had a great time with this, like... W the the four things that Wikipedia says about Black Company is that it's dark fantasy, 
it's hard fantasy it's uh i don't remember the the third one but it's also adventure is was the fourth genre attack okay um it's, it was just a really good time um it genuinely there's a whole bit where they're like we need to kill this rebel this rebel like general so we're gonna make this big rock and we're gonna put a hole in it and we're gonna dump a shit ton of treasure next to it and then in the rock we're gonna carve let whoever wishes to claim this bounty place the head of raker in this hole and then we're putting an enchantment on it to make it glow super super bright so there's this beam of light in this like town that you can see for miles around and if anybody tries to take the the treasure like they'll die but uh as soon as you put raker's head in the hole uh you'll be able to have all this this wealth and it works (laughs) (laughs) it drives people wild that like everything falls apart for these rebels because uh everybody wants that treasure um it's just cool so so but it it will in fact give treasure if someone puts the head in yes because uh ultimately the 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 black company itself are the people who put the head in and end up taking the treasure. Ah, yeah. Specifically Croker and Raven. I was kind of thinking when you started describing it that it was going to be just like a big scam just to get the guy that they didn't like killed. Um they're like <laughs> like we made this glow so people are going to think it has like a magic treasure in it, but it's just a hole that we want someone to put his head in. But actually working is also good. <laughs> I'm not saying the thing that it actually is is bad. Yeah. Um, this is a real good time. Um, last night I watched John Carter (laughs) (laughs) with Grace, um, and I've started reading the book, uh, Princess of Mars. Okay. That movie's something. There's a, there's a scene where he, like, realizes who this, this woman is, and he looks at the camera and he says... A princess of Mars. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> the thing you said to me last night when you got off the phone was not John Carter is a great movie. You said John Carter is a great experience. Yeah. <laughs> it's 2012. Disney doesn't have Star Wars yet. Uh, John Carter uh, as like a character and like I think all of those stories, maybe just the first one. I'm not 100% sure. But there, it's public domain at this point. Yeah. And then it's like, well, Pirates is dead. We gotta get a new adventure. We tried this Tron thing. It didn't work. We tried Lone Ranger, and that didn't work. That really didn't work. What if we did something without Johnny Depp? Should we get someone, like, charismatic that people like? No. Like Johnny Depp? No. Instead... Are you looking up who the main dude is? Taylor Kitsch. He looked like dollar store Chris Pratt, which doesn't even make sense because I don't think Chris Pratt was famous like that in 2012. Uh, I mean, he was famous. I don't think he was famous like that. Taylor Kitsch, you might know as Gambit from X-Men Origins Wolverine. Um, he was Kyle Crocodile Cho on Snakes on a Plane. Okay. He was in Battleship. Anyway, should we talk about Mistborn? <laughs> Um, I guess. Do you have the book? I started another book, though. Oh, sorry. I thought... Uh, you were done. I'm sorry. I'm just also reading The Shadow of What Was Lost. Oh, right. You told me about this. Uh, 
Can you hand me the file empire while you Google stuff? You want to... Your final empire <laughs> by uh, James Islington is the is the author, and boy, going from Black Company to like a 2014 like post Sanderson, very clearly specifically post Sanderson uh, fantasy book that is very concerned with its magic system and how the magic system fits into the plot and society is a lot. Um, it's very different. It is very like mechanical in a way that the Black Company was not at all. Um, and I'm I'm having a good time, even if I am kind of like looking down my nose at this one a little bit, mm-hmm. just a little bit. But, but it's fun. This one, unfortunately, is all about wizard discrimination. Ah, uh, mm, shut up. But, but also the people that flunk out of wizard school get marked, and those people are even lower than wizards. So it's like, what if the, what if wizard discrimination, like X-Men or something, uh, but also there was another second class of person that even those people who are discriminated against, they in turn discriminated against. Okay. I mean, I don't feel like, exactly. I don't feel like that's a concept that couldn't work at all. Like, I, you know, I'm not that, I, yeah. I've, like, read a bunch of different X-Men stuff, and I think that sometimes the, like, mutants are hated and feared thing works, and sometimes it doesn't, and it kind of depends on, like, how hard it's leaning on specific real-world parallels and, like, which real-world parallels it thinks work. Um, Someone, uh, we might someday listen to this podcast if she ever has the time, I don't know. My college advisor, Stephanie Burt, is extremely into the x-men in a way that i will never be (laughs) um and (laughs) i want to be i feel like the x-men people are all having a better time than the rest of us yeah i mean so uh with great respect to stephanie she cares an enormous amount about representation in a way that um i have like more complicated feelings about um and i think that like her her investment in X-Men means that she is constantly frustrated and disappointed by Marvel's editorial decisions, which is one of the reasons ah. why I will never be into X-Men the way that Stephanie is, because my heart can't take it. Um, but uh, something... <laughs> this is this is a more noble reason to be disappointed than me just not liking any Spider-Man story they've written in the last 10 years. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so something I've seen her say on Twitter and and that I think is, like, true as far as it goes, although I think going into the details of every X-Men story, it may not play out in full. But what she said is that, like, sometimes the X-Men as racism metaphor works okay. It works better as a metaphor for queerness. It works best as Mm -hmm. a metaphor for disability. And I think there are ways in which X-Men as metaphor for disability is also often bad. Um... But I think that's, like, a relevant point in the sense of, like, the details of how being a mutant is supposed to work in the Marvel Universe uh, don't, like, there are ways in which when you try to map that onto racism, which X-Men often very explicitly tries to do, it gets really stupid. <laughs> um, yeah. Or, like, about offensive. about the scene in, uh, in uh, First Class where I think Magneto, maybe turns to the black character and says they'll enslave us 
Yeah, or like all the times. I like that, that movie too. All the times, <laughs> and there's a number of these times when Kitty Pride said the N word. That's always bad. That's never been good. They should never have done that. It was the fucking 80s. Too late for that. Not that it's ever been good, but like, there's no it, excuse yeah. if it was a different time. It was the 80s, not that long ago. Anyway, um, um, sorry, that was like a total digression. X-Men's not that related to what you were talking about. I guess I just wanted to point out that the whole like magic or like fantasy powers people are oppressed thing mm-hmm. can work, but also the details of how it works can be very particular. Yeah. Um, when I described this to Grace last night, she just said, this sounds like a book about creating a problem to solve. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that sounds accurate. Uh, I'll report back with more of those uh, next time. But now, Mistborn. 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 We're here. We're free. We're free of Elantris. Much like Raiden himself. God. He's actually. I mean, yeah. He Raiden lives in Elantris. <laughs> Raiden loves Elantris so much. <laughs> He wants to marry Elantris. He did marry Elantris. We were starting a new book. Yes. And Nora had an idea uh, right, right before we recorded. Oh, yeah, this. Okay. I've got a mass market paperback of Mistborn, the final empire in my hand. And I'm just going to read the back cover, if that's cool with everybody. Please. Once a hero arose to save the world. A young man with a mysterious heritage courageously challenged the darkness that strangled the land. He failed. For a thousand years, the world has been a wasteland of ash and mist, ruled by an immortal emperor known as the Lord Ruler. Every revolt has failed miserably. Yet somehow, hope survives. Hope that dares to dream of ending the empire and even the Lord Ruler himself. A new kind of uprising is being planned, one built around the ultimate caper, one that depends on the cunning of a brilliant criminal mastermind and the determination of an unlikely heroine, a street urchin who must learn to master allomancy, the power of a mistborn. Um, book comes out in 2006. It is uh, Brandon's breakout novel. This is like the reason he's famous at all. No one read Elantris. Uh, 400 people a week read <laughs> this, um, um This book was just called Mistborn when it came out, right? Not Mistborn, the Final Empire. That's or, right. My copy yeah. actually just says Mistborn on the Okay, book. I wanted... This was the question I had. I was like, did it come out as The Final Empire or did it come out as Mistborn? I think it came out as Mistborn and okay. it was subtitled when, like... There are sequels. Because when I was looking for it, I was, like, really unclear on... Okay, wait, no, this is The Final Empire. That must be the last one. What's the first one? I was, like, trying oh, to find... yeah. I think it just came out as Mistborn... On Audible, it is just listed as The Final Empire, but Audible is notorious for going in and changing titles and covers of books um, constantly, so... Um, um, and uh, yeah. did he ever... Do you two know if he ever, like, changed the text on this like he did for Elantris? I don't believe he has ever done any sort of edits. I don't believe okay. there's... At the very least, nothing that I'm aware of in the audiobook or this mass market paperback. Outside of potentially the title, depending on, like, what printing and what region you're in, I think that this is just what the book is. Yeah. There's not even... Because, like, I know, um, like, Stephen King has edited the Dark Tower series lightly to, like, 
bring the first novel, like, make some continuity changes to the first novel and some other stuff. There's not even that. There's even some details in this book that Brandon has said, like, yeah, I didn't really want to do this, Mm -hmm. but I did. And it's just stuck. And now I have to just live with this this thing is how this works. Rather Um, than editing this book to make the continuity fit, he's just, like, living in the house he built. (laughs) I mean, I respect that. I think that's better than, like, going back and changing it. Um... I, I think this? I think Stephen King doing that to the Dark Tower is coward shit, frankly. <laughs> yeah. This is um the first of the original the Era 1, the Mistborn yes. Era 1 trilogy. It's going to be followed up by The Well of Ascension in 2007 and The Hero of Ages in 2008. And then there will be Mistborn Era 2. We will cross that bridge when we get there. It no takes- need to dwell on what it is right now. All you need to know is that it takes place 300 years after these novels. Yeah. And we'll get there probably after Way of Kings? I think so. It'll be a while before we get to that yeah. set of books. But we will be returning to the world of Mistborn many times. Yes. Um, there, Sanderson's like stated plan... Because Era 2 was supposed to just be one book that he's decided to make four books. Yeah. <laughs> and there's at least two more eras planned two more trilogies with some other like one-off novels in between that might also <laughs> turn into yeah, series of their own he has a grand plan for mistborn that will eventually uh be like 12 or more books but these are smaller books these are normal books these this is not, not the way of kings this is not a stormlight archive these are normal like 300 i guess this is 600 page <laughs> Damn. Normal, huh? <laughs> well, it's uh, look. I'm, okay. I'm not saying that a 600 page, page book is bad at all. Um, mm-hmm. And it might even be like average for like fantasy novels in some sense. I don't really know how to mm-hmm. get that statistic. I just think it's very funny that your estimation was half what it really is. <laughs> it's My a crazy book. I assume most books are 300 pages unless I look at it and it says otherwise. I knew it was more than three, but I would have guessed five, not six. Anyway. It was five in its first printing in hard, hardback. Oh, goddamn. Uh, anyway, all that to say, this was my first Sanderson. Okay. Because this is kind of what he suggested on his podcast, writing excuses as like a good, like first place to read his huh. stuff. So you actually first got into Brandon Sanderson via his podcast. Yes, because I was I was I was on NeoGaf doing the monthly writing challenge, uh, and like listening to writing podcasts such as Writing Excuses and the Dead Robot Society which was some, like, sci-fi libertarian guys who all do, like, self-publishing stuff. Um, I was just listening to a lot of podcasts about writing, and I found writing excuses, and I listened to it a bunch, and um, from there read some of those authors' stuff and ended up sticking with Mistborn. Mm -hmm. And then uh, reading, like, I bought it on Google as an ebook, and it was just the whole trilogy in one file, so I just read through all of them, and it was, it was a great time. Yeah. Nice. I um, Little did I know the seeds I was planting. I read the Stormlight Archive books, the first three that were out when I got into Sanderson first, and then mm-hmm. after I finished those, I was like, 
Uh, I, I guess I'll read Mistborn. I don't know. It doesn't sound as interesting to me, but I'll pick it up. I'll look at it. I ended up finishing this book in like two days, uh, the first yeah. time I read it. I ended up finishing the trilogy by the end of the week. Um, I really love Mistborn. So Th- yeah. that was last year that I read this. So excited to... Me reading that book last year is when I then finished it. I was like, should we just do a Sanderson podcast? And yeah. <laughs> roped Mark into this. <laughs> And to be fair, I think he, I actually volunteered. Yes, yes. I tweeted, I was like, I think what I tweeted was, it would be cool to do a Sanderson podcast, but I'd want a third chair and I don't know who to fit. And you were like, oh, pick me, pick me. And I was like, great, you're in. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, being very tentative. I was like, oh, um, well, I if you'd be interested, I could. And then you were like, yeah. It was, I was moment... I remember the moment you replied to the tweet because I turned to Nora. I was like, this is perfect. How did I not think of this? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, like, I at the time was, like, not sure about... Because, like, I knew I could podcast with Ben, but that's because Ben and I have been best friends for, like, ten years. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if people who weren't Ben were going to want to podcast with me. And look at us now. Anyway. Um, have you read this book before? Who, me? No. Um, yeah. I... So my history with this book is that uh, in college, I had read, like, I'd read The Way of Kings not long after it came out, and I loved that. I really, really enjoyed it. And so then I was like, all right, let me, let me, list, let me uh, read some more of this stuff. I had a summer job, which was, like, sorting books on a campus library, basically. Like, the library was like moving locations so they could like renovate a building. So they just needed to move all the books. And that was what I was doing. So I was just listening to audiobooks all day long. And I started listening to the Mistborn audiobook. And I listened to, I guess it must have been the first couple minutes, because I only remember the first couple pages. And I was like, this is disgusting. Yeah. What yeah, the fuck is wrong rough. with this book? Like, this is, it starts pretty bad. This is offensive, and, like, I don't want to listen to this shit if that's what it's going to be like, so I turned it off. So yeah. that was my only experience with Miss Morn, and I was honestly, like, pretty anxious, because um, I know that you two both really love this book, and I think in general among my friends, this kind of has the reputation of, like, oh, this is the good shit. Like, this, mm-hmm. is, this is Brandon doing his thing well and i was like what if i don't like it but no i'm actually already having gotten through those first terrible couple pages i'm already having fun so okay good yeah i feel like in our circles uh stormlight archive is even more so like yeah everyone posts let's fucking go yeah but i know um, i but mistborn i know i like for that. me but yeah i i also i stealed my heart a little bit because mist or no Olivia, Olivia just read Mistborn right before we started it and didn't care for it and like did a Goodreads review. I liked Olivia's Goodreads review and I was like, okay, like this is now in my headspace. Like maybe Mark won't like Mistborn and like these might be some of the reasons that Mark might not like Mistborn. And I was like able to like steal my heart and we could just have like a good conversation. Thank you, Olivia, for... (laughs) I I do have, you know, I do already have like some, some, some critiques, like some thoughts that aren't pure, like... Yeah, this rules. But like, I, I yeah. don't think that I'm... first chapter's bad. We're gonna get into it. In a yeah, second. we can talk about it. But but I I, I feel like I'm yeah. I feel like I'm I'm signed on. I'm invested. Um, so yeah, let's go. Yeah, um, yeah. 
I'm also what I've been what I've had on the screen during this as I was just in, looking at the Chinese cover of Mistborn: The Final Empire, which I'm sending to your DMs right now, is just cool. Okay, what, it's fun. It's fun our... looking at a. It's fun looking at international covers of books um, because they're often uh, they're often cool. <laughs> Better than the American ones. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Um, I guess we'll because we read. The prologue, chapter one and chapter two, and I guess we will stick with um, the format yeah, that we, we went through last time. So I'll read the first chapter summary. Mark, you'll read the second chapter summary. Nora will read the third. Um, Do you want to read? Because we have the... Every chapter starts with an excerpt from a text in italics. Uh, and like as you read the book, you get further through that like thing and you learn some context about whatever that text is. Do you? We have that those excerpts in front of us. Do we want to read those? I mean, does that How mean... How about... Would that mean just reading every excerpt for the entirety of the book? Um... I'm not I, sure. I can summarize. I can summarize these. I can summarize these. They're pretty short, generally, um, and so maybe in the next few weeks, um, I will actually just read them. But this first one is a bit longer. I will just summarize. Okay. Um, I'm going to summarize all three of them really quickly. Um, so yeah, we have these chapter headers in the italics, um, and... The first one is about a, like, sort of prophesized hero who is feeling some doubts. Um, there is, you know... It's a journal. Yes. There is a religious belief that the person who is writing this italicized text is going to be, um, like, the savior of the world. And the the person writing this is having some doubts about himself. Um, like, he says... I consider myself to be a man of principle, um, uh, but uh, I'm just a guy with some armies, you know? Um, I'm trying to pick out any important details. Well, you skipped over the title that he has. Oh, yeah. He is titled The Hero of Ages, which is also going to be the name of the second book in the trilogy. The third book. Third book in the trilogy. I can't remember those two. Um... Yeah, important details here. Um, perhaps another person reading of my life would name me a religious tyrant. Um, this hero of ages is like in command of some armies. Um, if men read these words, let them know that power is a heavy burden. That's sort of like... The, we're just getting into the headspace and a few quick details about this character who we're going to keep getting developed over the course of like all these chapter headers throughout the book. Um, do you two have any thoughts about that stuff? Well, I, I, I don't maybe, but I, I mean, I, so I have a theory about who this guy is at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Hit me. Um, and I mean, this is skipping ahead, I guess, to things that we hear about in the actual text of like the chapters in the prologue, but I'm assuming this guy is the Lord ruler and that this is something that happened a thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wait, but yeah, do you mean that's just true? I am not I am not confirming or denying it. I am okay, just saying okay. Yeah. I, I guess I am saying this is Cause yeah. to me, especially based on that blurb that you just read, which I was not previously familiar with, but that blurb clearly wants you to think 
that this prophesied hero is someone who rose against the Lord Ruler and then failed. But I am assuming, because that's... Mm -hmm. I mean, like, Brandon is in some ways known for doing very straightforward heroic fantasy. And obviously this book is about after the heroic fantasy didn't work. And so maybe that's already enough of a twist on it that, like, the rising hero doesn't need to become the tyrant. But just, like, it's such a... It feels like such a a, a, a good fit for what's going mm -hmm. on here. That someone tried to save the world and instead became the person who has established the order that means that the world is dying. That just, that makes sense to me, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, true. I maybe shouldn't say more, is what I'll say. Then don't. I'm not. Just read the summary. I'm going to read the summary for chapter one. We have much shorter summaries than Elantris had. By chapter one, you mean the prologue, right? By the prologue, yes. Thank you. Um... Lord Trusting entertains an obligator. That's a vocabulary word. Lord Trusting entertains an obligator sent by Lord Venture, hoping to gain Venture's business partnership. Kelsier speaks with some ska in the evening when a ska girl is being taken to Trusting. Kelsier intervenes, killing Trusting and all his servants and soldiers, finally burning the manor to the ground. This is a terrible summary. This is a yeah. too short of a summary, perhaps. Let's, uh, <laughs> let, let's talk about what actually fucking happens in the chapter. Yeah. There's a so, uh, there's a southern planter overseeing his slaves. That's what's happening. And yes. that's, that's what infuriated yes. me. Because it's so, so, so clearly yes. American yes. antebellum plantation slavery. Yes. Except it's a little bit even more evil. Because when the slave master like as a matter of course like rapes an enslaved child he's also legally required to murder her yeah so like we've taken the real historical horror and then been like oh by the way it's actually been going on for a thousand years and it's like a little bit more bloody although not to say yep i i don't actually think that like killing the victims of their sexual assault is something that like slave owners didn't do i'm sure they did mm -hmm. but but like there's a legally required is a new twist yeah there's there's a certain sense and i think that was part of what disgusted me so much in like 2013 yeah. was like brandon you think you're gonna take like one of the great evils of one of your people's great evils right like slavery mm -hmm. is not just like one of the great evils of history it's one that like brandon sanderson and me and both of you all have like a personal kind yep. of stake in as like the descendants yeah. of the perpetrators of. Um, and you're going to make it even a little bit more, not more evil, but more sensational for your fucking fantasy yeah. novel. Go yeah. to hell. That's disgusting. Um, that yep. really offended me and it still offends me, but it's, um, it's bad. <sighs> We we're introduced to the ska S K A A, not the genre of music, but oh, I'm sure we'll. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bad choice of words, Brandon. Um, He's never listened to ska. <laughs> Brandon Sanderson does not know about ska. Brandon Sanderson listens uh, to like Christian music, right? I assume so. Derogatory. What does Brandon Sanderson think of the new Killers album? I need to know. I don't even know that there was a new Killers album. Anyway. Um, the ska are these sort of, like, 
laboring class of people. We are introduced to a society that is built in, that has like two classes of people. There's like nobles and aristocrats and people who are in charge of things and ska so who have been. I actually would not. I am very interested in what the sort of um, um, class and like racial structure of this society is because I think I think it's pretty clear. First of all, from the obvious plantation slavery, like. Parallels, and also from the the way that the word ska is used, that that ska versus like the people that trusting belongs to is not just like a class category, like a like an economic matter, but also a racial one. Like there's a sense that yes, like uh, children well, between these people would be like miscegenation. That word isn't used, but the word like half blood is used. Um, yeah, but there, but there is. Because there is, there's only, it's complicated and dumb, because in Mistborn there are only two races, right. which are Terrace people and everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, we have not met Terrace people not, yet. But we've, so. they've been mentioned in the chapter header as the Terrace prophecies mm-hmm. okay. that led to the Hero of Ages. Um specifically because like in the second chapter in the first chapter rather mm-hmm. you know Cayman in, in impersonates a noble because the difference between ska and noble is not necessarily something visible well that doesn't other than that doesn't mean it's not a racial difference though like people but, can and do pass as other races all the time like yeah so the 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 reason i use the word class i guess is that in in this chapter as we were introduced to it there is no sort of like like we're introduced to the idea that kelsier is like quote unquote half blood mm-hmm. um the there is no indication that there is any sort of like you could not look at a person and discern their class in society except except their demeanor like their morale yeah their clothes which is like the class aspects like yeah how they're dressed how they present themselves so how they like react to the world around them rather than like uh you know something Okay, so I'll, I'll propose a different way of looking at this then, because it sounds like what you two are trying to kind of express is that there's no recognizable phenotypical difference between right. ska and like nobility. Um, that not only is it like possible for a ska to pass as nobility by dressing differently, but literally that a a, a nude ska and a nude noble would be totally indistinguishable from each other. Um, right. Sure. Um, I I think that, like, the idea that race is fundamentally based on, like, a visual difference is a little, like, um, complicated, I guess. Um, I I, I don't want to act like I have, like, all the deep, like, (laughs) you know, understanding of, like, theory to to fully talk about the ways in which I think that's not quite an accurate idea. But I I do get that, like, this story is trying to construct... Mm -hmm. A situation that is not not quite analogous to real world racial categories, but I think it is also not quite analogous to real world 
like economic class. Yeah, um, yeah. There's there's a reference at one point in one of these chapters to the idea that there are quote unquote middle class nobles. Um, but this actually kind of seems to me to be a society without a middle class. It seems like it has aristocracy and laborers, but no like bourgeois. Like the people who do all the business are also hereditary aristocrats. Yes. Yes. I think that the the sort of middle class is is really just like the, that there are two classes of nobles, which are nobles and then the great houses, mm-hmm. which right. are like the ten families that have yes. keeps that are like descended from personal friends of the Lord Ruler from a thousand years ago. And they are like noble plus. I guess like, I guess, yeah, the, the thing to hook onto in these first chapters that I think is going to get elaborated on, like literally like in the next three chapters we cover, I think is that like this stuff is largely hereditary. And this is why it is legally required to like, you know, you know, for a noble person to kill a ska, like, person that he rapes. Like, the reason that is legally required is that this is all, like, hereditary and based on, like, lineage stuff. Um, And so, you know, children of nobles and ska are looked down on because it makes the whole system kind of murky. And also because, uh, as they mention in here, um, that magic was uh is is the is the domain of the noble mm-hmm. uh lineage okay so that is that is not what i took from what was being said and i guess that's better than the thing that i took because okay let let me let me find the thing that is actually said about the kind of like magic justification for why uh why um you know Nobles are not supposed to have bastard children with their ska. Um, there's a, th- this is, so Kelsier is like talking to the, the sky who work on this plantation and they're talking about how this like, this poor girl has been like kidnapped to be given to the Lord. Um, disgusting. Anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Kelsier's thinking about this and he says, that was the Lord Ruler's command. He couldn't afford to have half-breed children running around, children who might possess powers that Ska weren't even supposed to know existed. And so it sounds like what this actually means is all of the nobility potentially have access to powers and those can be passed on in a hereditary way. And so if a noble has a yes. child with a Ska, the Ska might have those powers. None of the nobles yes. express any powers at any point in the stuff we read. So what I read that as meaning was, ah, there is a special thing that happens with the children of a noble and a ska that doesn't happen with nobles or ska. And that's why Kelsier is special. And presumably that's also why Vin is oh, special. Vin okay. must be. No. That, that is what I took from it. And I clearly that's not what it means. That's, and I'm glad because yeah. that would be actually pretty like. There'd be yeah. something Vin much. Vin have Saiyans. <laughs> okay, I don't know what that means, but. It's. It's fine. Because um, the ha- half human, half Saiyan is stronger than a Saiyan. Yeah. Oh, Just sure. Don't worry about it. Um, anyway, yeah, <laughs> like, I... I th- this this frustrates me a little bit because, like... Yes. I. It's not like... Miscegenation was a crime in 
the like antebellum South. Actually, probably in probably throughout. I don't know for sure like yeah. what the laws about that were in like northern countries. Actually, country states wouldn't be surprised. It was actually a crime in the north as well in many places. But mm. uh, but that didn't mean that it didn't happen. And the idea that um, what what am I trying to say here? I think it is a little weird to make it to make us believe that that this is a law that is actually like obeyed in a regular way and that mm-hmm. like I guess another interpretation could be that no of course it's not obeyed strictly there are all kinds of like children of you know institutionalized rape and maybe some of them have magic powers because of that, but that's not a thing that has ever really allowed anybody to do anything because the magic powers are hard to use. Um, I guess I find that believable, but there's just something about entangling the historical evil and trauma of like the rape of slave owners against like their enslaved people with magic powers that Mm -hmm. makes me uncomfortable yeah Um, so (laughs) yeah (sighs) we we sort of like immediately got into like the weeds of like the gross shit i guess because the summary that the chat the copper mine has is so brief i want to just like quickly go over like what actually happened? The chapter is in sort of like two halves. Yeah. Um, one, we get the perspective of this Lord Trusting, who is this plantation owner, um, who is seeking to make like a big deal uh, with this Lord Venture. And he has this religious guy, um, this religious like figure, an obligator here to sort of like oversee the deal. What's an obligator? Obligators are a sort of, like, religious bureaucrat class, I would say, mm-hmm. as we were introduced part to Part of here. the Steel Ministry. Part of the Steel Ministry is another thing that we're going to get in Chapter 1 or 2. Um, they, um... So, like, for example, this is, um, like, Lord Venture's own personal obligator that he has sent to, like, um, oversee this deal. And, like... All these, um, because it is mentioned that, like, Lord Trusting does not own these Ska. The Lord Ruler owns these Ska, and they are on lease to him. They are on lease to Lord Trusting via the Lord Ruler. (laughs) And so the obligators, being this religious bureaucratic class, are involved in these deals that involve the Lord Ruler's Ska. To, to, like, because, like, the Lord Ruler is the head of the state, mm-hmm. and also of the religion mm-hmm. that is the only religion that, it's not that important right now, but these are literally, like, clerics and, like, priests, and also and are IRS. lawyers. Yes, yes. <laughs> they are the IRS. They have to monitor any transaction or any, like, deal between nobles. Yes. I, yes. I feel like um, I... 
I, I think it's interesting, by the way, that both of that you've been using the word class to refer to these guys, and I think that's accurate. And I think it is like I'm I'm sure they're all from the uh, nobility, but they are clearly in a different category from a guy like Tresting. You know, um, this is like so, this particular thing is a thing I don't remember. Like I don't remember who gets to be an obligator or not, and so I'm excited to kind of like re relearn that because I I seized on like oh the obligators are kind of like an interesting group of people that i didn't pay attention to the we first only time. get a very passing glimpse into that and only through like a, a, an adjacent thing to mm -hmm. the obligators i don't think we ever get in any real obligator like pov yeah. or anything but still i think there's but, stuff about them that i don't remember that i'm excited to relearn yeah. so They're, they've got some friends that we'll talk to and just talk about in just a minute that are really cool <laughs> They've also um, got eye tattoos. They've got eye tattoos. And how ornate your tattoo, like eyeshadow, I guess, eye tattoos. Well, they are tattoos. Yeah, but not on the eyes. Yeah. Like your eyelids and around your eyes. You have these tattoos and these like twisting patterns of lines. And the more ornate and big your eye tattoos are, that represents your rank in the hierarchy of the... Obligators. The obligators. So. Yeah. Um... That's a cool the other thing. like, the other like half of this chapter then is that we are introduced to Kelsier, who is a ska who like, uh, is breaking the rules by like traveling around to different plantations, and the um, ska on Trusting's plantation, um, kind of don't trust him, don't like him, but. Also, you know, it's mentioned that they're like incurable gossips, and they want to know the news from like around you know the other places other places and kelsier can can give that and so they like let him in despite a lot of misgivings now why in part does nobody travel long distances nobody travels long distances because we are introduced to the mists which are like this sort of this this fog that descends I don't remember if it's every night or most nights. Every night. Every as night. As soon as the sun goes down. As soon as the sun goes down, like, there are mists that sort of, like, permeate, like, outside, um, throughout, like, the places... The world. The world. The world. I could not think of that word. Okay. I could not think of the word world. I, I feel like I want to mention, already you guys are saying a ton of shit I don't know about the mists. I know that there are mists. I know that they happen at night. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's every night, yes. the fact that it's the entire world, both of those are things I don't know yet. Um, which okay. is, I, I'm not like upset because I don't actually think those are things that I care that much about. But I, I, I say that to mention that we're being given information about the mists in a very kind of slow and, and like piecemeal way. And I think it's much more yes. delicate than a lot of delicate. That's maybe not the word I want. Like artful, much more artful than a lot of the world building about what was going on with the magic shit in Elantris was because it's like... Yes. We don't we don't get told what the mists do. We just get told that mm -hmm. everyone is, or at least all these ska are scared of them, and they're like, yeah. "Kelsier, you go outside in the mists. Like you must be. Um, I forget the word for it. They think he's some kind of maybe some kind of like demon. Um, a mist wraith. Mist wraith. Yeah. The word they use. Um, and and yeah. like the the idea that someone could go out in those mists and like survive or like be okay is like hard for anyone to believe. Um, but at the same time, clearly yes. Kelsier is doing it. And so we don't know what the mists do to people. Like, does it kill them? Does it turn them into a mist wraith? Um, does it just maybe make you sick? 
maybe it doesn't do anything mm-hmm. and this is pure superstition. I don't know any of that yet. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, I think like, like you say, it's kind of artful because it like, the reason that we, the readers, do not get much information is that like, all, mo- most of the like characters in this scene are superstitious and don't don't trust the mists. Um, and so it's like, kind of like trying to build in you the reader like some sort of superstition and some sort of like what's going on out there what's good what the there's fuck's gravity up with that? to these behaviors that yeah. Kelsier has yeah yeah so um yeah because Kels- we, well, we have to establish that Kelsier is breaking rules and traditions and like is weird and like the way that we've done that here is like explaining that the, the mists are out and you don't go into the mist and when he opens the door and the mists start creeping in everyone freaks out and says close shut the door shut the door right can i maybe talk but about he's not, he... sorry go on but he's there with a big smile yeah can can i maybe what talk about saying? some of the other ways that he is like a rule breaker because i think the way that is treated yeah. is mm-hmm. interesting Part of what people are scared about is the fact that he is bringing talk of hope and change and like, uh, <laughs> and, and, and uprising. But the idea mm-hmm. of what kind of like uprising and change he's bringing is something that I'm like interested in, curious about. But, but the point being that like talk about the idea of things getting better for the ska is something that these people are like deeply untrustful of because their expectation is that that shit is going to get them in trouble and everything is going to get actually worse if there's someone hanging out with them who's talking about that kind of thing. Like, there's this thing in the first half of the chapter where it's basically from Tresting's perspective. There's this moment where some ska meets Tresting's eyes as he's working in a field and has like a look of defiance. And Tresting is like, what the fuck? I need to have that man beaten. Um, But then, you know, when he looks back, the guy's gone. And we find out very soon that was Kelsier. And like, everyone else is like, Kelsier, why did you do that? Like, why would you get this guy's attention? That's not going to do us any good. And... (laughs) I'm, I, this, this I feel a little complicated about. I think it's, like, workable because it's trying to give us the idea that, like, these people are, like, incredibly, you know, beaten down by their circumstances and don't dare to even have hope. And, like, you know, that's, that's real. That's, that's believable. But I think it's a little, like, um, I guess a little condescending towards them. And specifically, it's an yeah. understanding of what... Like, again, to, to draw this back to, like, the way that it's relating to American chattel slavery, like, of course, people were under, like, intolerable conditions and resistance was enormously difficult. But also, like, the idea that slaves never revolted or ran away or did anything that was like resistance because they were, like, beaten down and they didn't have, like, the spirit to do it. That's just, like, not true. Um like the mm-hmm. the history of enslaved people in America has been one of like incredibly tenacious resistance. Um and I think that's something that's not always like taught in American like history textbooks. Um Yeah. But yeah, so that's something that I find a little frustrating here is this idea that like Kelsier is the first guy these people have ever met 
who thinks that it might be possible to like take any kind of stand against their masters. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. It, it, it's not that I think that setting up a situation of like, here are some oppressed people who are exhausted and here's this guy who's going to inspire them. And maybe they don't like that at first, but it will be something that they can work with and, and that like a movement can build behind him. I don't think that's like fundamentally awful. Um, I just wish that it didn't have to be based so much on like denigrating these people, I yeah. guess. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, um, I think they're painted as like subservience is like their only, like the only thing they know how to do in some ways. And I don't love that, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think the end of the chapter is a little, uh, is a little better in that regard. Um, mm -hmm. cause so like Kelsier with these people, he's, he's talking to like, kind of, uh, like a leader among them. Who's this guy named Tepper. Who's kind of like a, like a middle-aged guy. And he's kind of the one who's being like, Kelsier, like, what are you doing here? You walk in the mist. Like what's up with you? Like, I, I don't like you. I don't like what you have to say. Um, the things you're saying are bullshit. Um, but then there's this other guy there who's, who's significantly older than him named Menace. And Menace, that's funny. Um, <laughs> but anyway, Kelsier talks to him and is like, hey, you're like older. You've like seen more of life. Why do you let this Tepper guy run things? And Menace is like, look, it, it's just easier. He wants to be in charge of stuff. And Kelsier is like, yeah, maybe you're right. Um, I guess I am a troublemaker. Um, but it, it, it's clear that Kelsier has a certain amount of respect for this menace guy, maybe literally just because he's old, but like, there's a sense of like, yeah, if he's gotten to this age in this life, like he's, he's, he's doing something to survive. And in the end of the chapter, Kelsier does this like completely disruptive thing where he kills Lord Tresting and all his men and burns the manor to the ground. And menace is like, well, shit. Yeah. We're now fucked because you know, other lords, like, higher up nobility are going to hear about this and they're going to send soldiers because they're going to assume we did it. They're going to send soldiers to kill all of us. So we have to run. We have to go to see if we can find, like, a, some people, some rebels hiding out in some caves who might take us in because that's our only hope at this point. And Menace is, like, not really ready to become, like, a rebel leader of his, his community, but he... He rises to the task because he has to. Um, and I think that's kind of nice. Like this, this old exhausted man who is like, all right, I guess I have to save my family. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, all that happens off screen. Um, Kelsier does, Kelsier uses, does do a little bit of magic in this prologue. He burns tin. But, um, he burns tin. Right. He's got tin in his belly and he's burning it. Yeah. Chapter one. Chapter one. Oh, I'm, um, I'm sorry. I did want to say one more thing about the kind of good news that yeah. Kelsier is bringing. The good news that Kelsier is bringing about things maybe getting better for the Ska is that there's a lord somewhere who has been treating his Ska better yeah. and paying them. Weak shit, Kelsier. Yeah. You need to be talking. Thinking about thinking about paying <laughs> <laughs> yeah considering yeah it's it's just uh 
buddy, like, and, and, and like, even that, everyone was like, those are lies. You're trying to give us hope that we can't have. It's like, this is a weird, like, I get that it needs to be, like, a pretty minor, low-key hope, because the set, the thing we want to communicate with this scene is, like, even something very slight is shocking to these people. But the very slight thing he could talk about is, like, hey, I know a couple people who got married and had kids and managed to all live together in the same house. Like, not that we don't actually know whether, like, breaking up families is part of the violence of this slavery, but my example is meant to illustrate that, like, there are things he could talk about that would still be, like, a very small, that wouldn't be on the level of, like, killing a lord and all his servants, or all his soldiers, <laughs> rather, um, but that would still, like, indicate, that there would be a resistance that came from the Ska themselves. So I think that's a little, I think that shows the horizons of what Brandon is able to imagine. Um, unfortunately. Yes. He's, he, he comes in and he says, uh, local lords rule in the West and they are far from the iron grip of the Lord ruler and his obligators. Some of these distant noblemen are finding that happy ska make better workers than mistreated ska. One man, Lord Renault, has even ordered his taskmasters to stop unauthorized beatings. You can still beat them. I just have to sign off on it. Yeah. There are whispers he's considering paying wages to his plantation scholar like city craftsmen might earn. Oh, right. Also, yeah. shit, sorry. Talking about this class society, who are the soldiers? Who are yeah. the city craftsmen? Are those guys all nobles? Yep. Hmm? I, mm, nah, sorry, I just, I don't think... <laughs> I don't think... I assume no. that... There, I assume I have. I, I genuinely don't remember. Is the thing I don't. I don't think he ever like like Brandon. Meaning, uh, uh, I don't think he ever like tells us that I, much. I feel like he does, and I don't remember. It, I just we'll get there. I I'm very curious won't. about this because typically speaking, a noble is not someone who draws a wage. Wage labor, right. Is a like is a different like class structure usually, than aristocracy. Right. So I... I mean, also these nobles, like, it seems like actually they... Um, I mean, they do business ventures, which is not totally out of keeping with being, like, landed nobility, but I don't know. I'm just... I'm paying attention to what the apparent sort of economic class structure of this society is, and also what its sense of, like, um, you know, hereditary uh, class, I guess, is, um, because it... It feels like this is trying to evoke the 19th century very heavily. Um, and the 19th century mm -hmm. is a time when class and racial systems were, I mean, there were, there were multiple different complicated class and racial systems in different mm -hmm. nations. And anyway, I'm paying yeah. attention to this stuff. I think it's interesting. It's so, some of it is like mixed metaphors and some of it is like deliberate world building and like it's kind of hard to like untangle some of what's what right now yeah yeah one last thing from the prologue i wanted to draw out and forgot about um i it is just that um who's the elderly guy menace menace yeah menace menace is talking to kelsier and says oh those scars on your arm, I've seen those from one other person. He was sent to the pits of Hath-Sin, and he died. Are you the one that they call sur the survivor? Um, I just, I want to draw that out as, like, plot stuff that if you're reading this book, like, you should probably key into. Anyway, it. we begin chapter one, which is <laughs> part one 
Uh, the survivor of Hatsim. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice that it's literally part one, the survivor of Hatsim. Uh, the, the, the parts in this book all sound like more modern full novels, like uh, The Survivor of Hatsim, Rebels Beneath a Sky of Ash, Children of a Bleeding Sun, Dancers in a Sea of Mist, and Believers in a Forgotten World. <laughs> this is all just like new YA stuff. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I wanted to mention, this is kind of made clear in this chapter and developed more in later, is it seems like there's ash falling from the sky all the time, and the sun is red. Yes. And th- yes. this is just, look, it's going to be hard to get me on board with the idea of a world that is dying and suffering because the sun is red and crops don't grow. Not because that's a bad idea, not because it can't be done well, not because it's not done well in this novel, but because there's mm-hmm. already a red sun in my sky. And it's it's the one in the book of the new sun. I'm, I'm sorry. Like, it, it's... Gene Wolfe already fixed that star for me. Um, it's going to be really hard for Brandon <laughs> to live up to that. Um, I just I need to, well, like, put that on the table. Sure. I think that uh, it's going to be pretty different. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's some things maybe Brandon does. That <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think that this is something where it's like it's totally audacious for him to do this because the idea of like yeah. the, the sun is red and that's fucked up is not Jim didn't invent that. Like, that's like a classic yeah, dying earth thing. Exactly, yeah. Like Vance was doing this yeah. also, but I am reading the summaries for chapter one and two and maybe don't want Mark to read these. Okay. There is, like, vocabulary stuff. I did notice, um, actually, I did actually look at them and I was like, oh, one of those words is linked, huh? So, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be reading the summaries. Yeah. Also, these are not great summaries. I'm just going to summarize chapters one and two together because they're kind of part of the same scene, if that's okay. Go for it. Is that okay? Okay. Um, We are introduced now to Vin, um, who is a plucky young girl in a, um, like, thieving outfit. There is a criminal underworld in Luthadel, which is the city we are introduced to that Vin is living in. Um, and she's like part of this thieving under... She's part of this like criminal underworld. She is a young girl. She is kind of just here because this is what her brother did, and she... Uh, her brother... I don't remember what... What's up with her brother? What's her brother? Her brother? I mean, chapter. her brother was abusive. That's like in a word that's explicitly yes. used. He, it's a, yes. it sounds like at some point in time he was like the person she lived with, and he like taught her a lot of stuff about how to live on the streets. But he also taught her that everyone will betray you, and he betrayed her. And yes, like, it sounds like he treated her like yes. shit, and she kind of took from that how to live with people who treat you like shit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Vin is, and she's also sort of like still haunted by everything that he's ever like taught yes. her. Like he's, she's constantly remembering things that he's said, and like that yeah. comes up a lot. Her, his voice her, is. Clearly... Her brother's name is Reen, by the way. Yes. Um, so she is with um, right. This was the dot. I couldn't remember how to connect. She is with this crew led by a guy named Cayman, um, who Reen rec- recently ran out on, mm-hmm. and. Cayman is like, oh, you owe me a bunch of money because Reen ran out on me, so I need to keep you around, Finn. And Cayman is with this other guy, um, Theron, um, planning this big heist where they're going to do, they're going to basically do a bad deal 
with the obligators in the steel ministry. Well, the original plan Mm -hmm. is that they're going to get hired as guards and as, like, rowers, I guess, for this boat that will... Ship money downstream. That will carry people Mm -hmm. down the canals from a training facility for obligators to the city, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And they're like, if we control the boat and we're the guards, we can rob them. Mm -hmm. It'll be easy. Yeah. All we have to do is set this contract set up so that we're the people providing the service so that we can turn on them. Yes. That's Theron's plan. And Cayman is reinforcing this thing that Reen has given to Vin, but he's like, I'm going to betray Theron before we even do that. I'm going to take the money that we get tonight and run. I'm going to convince them that we need a down payment. Yeah. And then we're going to bounce and let Theron deal with the fallout because I'm sure he's going to double cross me after the plan anyway. Speaking of the prisoner's dilemma. Right? (laughs) Vin lives in a world where everyone always defects. Um... Um... And the ace up uh, Cayman's sleeve for getting this deal done... Is his good luck charm. Is his good luck charm, Vin. He seems unclear, and Vin is definitely unclear on why. But Vin seems to have, like, a sixth sense, and things just seem to go, like, smoother when Vin is around. Well, it's described a lot more clearly than that, I think. It's not... And I wouldn't call it a sixth sense. She can't sense things. She can... Yeah. change things. She has something she calls her luck, which is a resource she can burn up that she can use to kind of nudge people's emotions and make them feel more amenable to like her mm-hmm. what what her group is trying to do. She can basically make people feel better and get them to agree to the things that um Cayman is trying to argue for. She also does have sort of a sixth sense in in a, in a way cuz like she is very um, perceptive, and she has these, like, gut feelings. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. like, oh, you came in, your, your guys who you're having pose as your servants, they're dressed too richly. If you're trying to pose as a guy who's really down on his luck, you need to have ska servants. So I didn't, more of them. I didn't take yeah. that as magic. I just thought she was really good. I don't think it's... No, but there's a whole scene where she's, like, constantly saying to the reader... Something's fucked up here. Yeah. I don't know what's going on, but the vibes are rancid. We have to leave. I am we not need say- to leave right now. Something is going wrong here. I am not saying that that is magic. I am just saying that, like, Vin is a person with, like, these sorts of gut instincts about, you know... Yeah. Like, these sorts of things. Weird That's all I'm saying. Yeah. She's a very perceptive person also. Yes. Yeah. No, that- the, the, but-, but yes, the magic is described very literally as, like, she can use her luck to, like kind of coax this guy into doing this thing. But it does seem like you know? Cayman doesn't actually really know that that's what she's doing. Like, I don't think Cayman knows no. that she has something mm-hmm. she's burning up to affect other people's emotions. Cayman just thinks she's a good yes. luck charm. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, they convince the guy and um, the first guy. Yeah, they meet the first guy obligator. they talk to. Um, and then the double cross is when they then go to the, the ministry, uh, the canton of finance. Is that right? Yeah. The canton of finance. And, and trying to do the second part, which is the double cross where they try to get a down payment and like get some money so they can bounce. And they have to talk to a different guy who's a higher ranking pralin as they're called. 
um, which is a tier of obligator. Mm-hmm. This was the high pralin, and um, he, Vin has to like push even harder with her luck too. She has to push her luck, if you will, <laughs> um, to like get him to agree to their thing, and he does. But she feels really weird about it, um, mm-hmm. and wants to get the hell out. And uh, and I I kind of saw what was going on here, which is that uh, like Finn was uh, Vin was able to get the first guy to agree relatively easy peasy, like uh, not easy I guess, mm-hmm. but like her her power her power worked on him. He agreed, mm-hmm. and she was like, "Phew, we're safe." Um, and then when they see the next guy, it's not who they were expected to see. It's a higher level guy. And mm-hmm. he, uh, just kind of like flatly refuses until Vin uses her power. It's, let me see if I can like, uh, look exactly at how it's phrased. Cause I believe that it, she kind of like, um, is resistant to using her power because she's like used a lot of it up. Is that accurate? Um, yes. And, so she finally does use it um, and because she, she feels a little desperate. Um, and then once she uses it, even just a little, he immediately says yes. And when that happened, I was like, ah, he wasn't, he doesn't care about this contract. She wasn't really convincing him. He was waiting to see if she used the power because he can tell when she uses the power and that's yes. what he's interested in. And that is exactly what's going the, on. Yeah. Kelsier says that later on. Because Kelsier is yeah, here. It's, it... Sorry. Hmm. Kelsier is here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Kelsier's here. Kelsier's in the waiting room spying on them. Um, the, the two sentences are, gritting her teeth, Vin reached out and used her luck on the obligator, making him less suspicious. Ariev smiled. Well, you've convinced me, he suddenly declared. <laughs> yeah, and it's like very obvious to the reader, like, oh, he sniffed her out. Like, mm-hmm. he has some way of detecting when she's using her power. And we're mentioned in this next scene that uh Kelsier talks to Doxin, his friend, who he's like meeting up with again. And he tells him, you know, they're they're trained to detect when somebody is using alamancy on their emotions. Yeah. Um and uh yeah it's Kelsier is back in the city and he's trying to set up some kind of like caper, some kind of like theft. And he's talking yeah. to his old thief buddy and they're talking about like what guys do I know that we can get on this crew? Is, is so-and-so still in town? Uh, I don't want to work with that guy. He's, he's good at this, but he sucks. Um, what about my brother? Oh, he's not going to want to work with him. Oh, work with us. Oh, I'll just talk to him, and then he'll work with us. It's great. This is, like, what you want out of, like, a, like a heist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is the good shit. There's, like, a line that I really loved where, um... So... I don't remember exactly what the context is. Oh, it's toward the end of this. So they're talking about this heist. We can circle back to this in a second. I just want to talk about this line for just two seconds. Um, and after they're kind of talking about this heist, Doxon is like, oh, I want you to come see something. I've heard about this girl who has powers. And so he's taking Kelsier to see Vin. And he has like a... He has, like, um, some inside information that Vin is going to be on this job at this building right now. So, um, like, Doxon, like, they're like, oh, Vin's in trouble at the very end of this. Um, and he's like, Doxon, can you do this? And Dox is like, 
Well, I told you I've got uh, bored, not bad. <laughs> that was just a really good little bit of like, oh, yeah, the I'm... gang's back in town. I don't even know who the gang is yet, but the gang's back in town. It's boys' night. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's boys' night. It's literally, so they've been, this is after they've kind of observed Vin and they're like, all right, we're going to maybe track down this girl. Maybe she's got powers. But then they spot this fucking dude with the spikes. Yeah. yeah! Love this guy. This is a man, a steel inquisitor, and he has two iron spikes stabbed completely through his skull so that there's like flat iron shapes where his eyes used to be and spikes sticking out of the back of his head. Oh, this I forgot rules. that they go all the way through. I forgot that they're sticking out like an inch on the other side. That's metal as hell. <laughs> it rules. And he can obviously still... To steal Nora's joke. He can obviously her. still see or at least perceive in some way because he, he turns... I mean, it's literally described as spiked eyes regarding Kelsier. So so he's, he's paying attention to Kelsier with those spikes somehow. Uh, and that's when Kelsier and Toxin are like, all right, we've got to get out of here. And Kelsier's like... Uh, can you deal with those tails? And that's when Dachshund's like, I said I'd become boring, Kel. Not sloppy. I can handle a couple of ministry flunkies. <laughs> it's like, great. So Dachshund is going to deal with the tails and make sure that Vin is safe and not being tailed by the ministry. And Kelsier is going to have a fucking chase scene with the Steel Inquisitor. Oh. Yeah. I'm jazzed. They're really cool. <laughs> I love Steel Inquisitors. Um, I can't wait to find out what kind of fucked up shit those guys can do. Um, uh, Dahora monks, boring. <laughs> Pathetic. <laughs> I don't care about them. Do we have a much cooler evil priest now. <laughs> um, Nora is just like clicking through like various Google image searches of Steel Inquisitors, and all of these are great guys. Yeah, every single one of mm-hmm. them. The one, the one on this, uh, this is a Chinese cover. You said mm-hmm. uh, the one on this yeah. Chinese cover looks great. Uh, as this cover in general looks fantastic. Um, but yeah, I can only imagine yeah. that people have made some sick art of these dudes. Yeah, some pretty pretty uh, inventive cosplay too. Nobody's Ooh. out here putting spikes through their heads. <laughs> yeah, but I'm seeing some what appear to be like uh, sort of altered swimming goggles. Goggles, sure, oh. to be like the spike heads. That's fine. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's actually kind of a very clever like because you know uh, it does presumably look a little bit like goggles because it's just two flat discs that kind of stick out a little bit from your face, right? Because it. It doesn't sound like mm-hmm. the, the flat end of the spikes is totally flush with, like, the cheeks. It sounds like it probably sticks out like an inch. Um, so it is going to kind of look like goggles, which is a cute thing to do in your steampunk book. Um, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to say, like, once I got to, uh, you know, the actual chapters here, we've been mm-hmm. talking about chapters one and two together, and I think that makes sense because they are pretty continuous. Once I got to, like, Vin's point of view and this stuff about like thief crew plans and this stuff with like Kelsier and Dachshund talking about getting the crew back together I was immediately back on board even though I was so frustrated with all the like all the slavery stuff and like frustrated even with Kelsier in that prologue because I found his sort of role as this like bringer of hope kind of frustrating I love the way Vin thinks about things I love her yeah. internal monologue. It's very clear that Vin is constantly thinking stuff that's really important, that helps her make decisions, and that helps her do the shit that other people need her to do, but she never says any of it to anybody. 
Um, because she yes. knows that if she talked about the stuff that's in her head, she'd be in a lot of trouble. Um, yeah. And yeah, she's got, I, I like her personality. I, you know, it's not the most, like she's a, you know, she's a, she's an orphan girl who's like had been hardened by experience and learned to survive. It's not like I've never seen a character like that before in my life, but, but it's good. It's executed really well in the same way that this like getting the crew together for a heist stuff is executed really well, even though that is itself like generic. Um, well, and it's not something that we saw Brandon do in Elantris even once. She's like a very, she's a character with a lot of internality and not a lot going on, like. Because this is the first time that Brandon has given us a character who doesn't talk very much. Yeah, yeah. Craythen has some internal. Brandon and. Sorry, go on. Raiden, Serini, and Raiden, like, Raiden is a prince, Serini is very witty, and Raiden is a preacher. They all love talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Raiden sometimes had some internal monologue about his, like, crisis of faith stuff, mm-hmm. but um, it wasn't like, I don't know, it didn't feel like this, it, it felt, it feels maybe like that was the stepping stone he needed to get here, you know? Um, and that was, yeah, like, and that was the best part of, of Elantris, so. Yeah. Horathan was never, like, leading the scene. Or, mm-hmm. like, no, Horathan was always leading the scene, so his internality was always sort of tethered to the actual things he was doing. Whereas Vin, so far, is not leading any scenes. She's always, like, watching things and, like, tweaking things, but never, like, being the person who's, like, actively doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like in in the cameras, like like following her in that way, so she has a lot more room to like explain things to herself and to the reader. And, yeah. Well, and it's also just clear that she's like a character who like is deeply anxious and thinking a million miles a minute. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, yeah. Like... <laughs> I I think this is this is a character who again this is something where I'm like you gestured at this with Freythan, but it was not done well, and now you're doing it better because. Craythen was someone who we were meant to believe had experienced trauma and it had shaped him as a person and changed his perspective on life, right? Like, because he'd been through this thing at the Decor Monastery. But really, that wasn't ever well developed, right? Like, beyond, like, a few minutes. It just gave him a fucked up arm. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas, like, you know, the way that Vin thinks about the world, I mean, it's laid out very explicitly. It's not, like, especially subtle, but I do think it's done well, where, like, we can understand how... At the same time, the perspective that she has, it's a combination of things that her brother explicitly told her, like, people will always betray you, and also things that, like, she's clearly learned from experience. Like, there's this moment where, you know, in this first meeting uh, Cayman has with the first um, obligator, he's, he's trying to present himself as a noble who is kind of desperate for a contract, and Vin thinks, uh, good. Make sure you remain subservient, Cayman. You need to seem desperate. And I'm like, oh, that's a strategy Vin uses all the time. That's how Vin deals with Cayman. In fact, we saw her do that earlier in the scene where he slapped her across the face and she just kind of lay there and took it because she knew that if she didn't kind of like cringe and let him hit her, that he was going to hit her more. And like, that's a, it's, it's a, it's not just, I mean, I guess learned helplessness is kind of the phrase that comes to my mind, but it's not just, you see right. how that is like a survival strategy. It's not just like, it's not like what we saw with the ska where it's like they're just beaten down and it's sad and they'll never help themselves. It's like, no, you see how this actually functions for Vin, how this is useful. But you also see how it's fucked up and how it wouldn't allow her to 
escape a situation like this, even as it would allow her to survive it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to close this out with the why we've called our chat, our little voice room here, Hope Punk Batman. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, how do you do that? Menace asked, frowning. What? Smile so much. Oh, I'm just a happy person. Menace glanced down at Kelsier's hands. Uh, he um, describes the the thing with the pits of Hathson. And Kelsier says... And Kelsier looks down at his uh, hands and forearms. They still burn sometimes, though he was certain the pain was only in his mind. He looked up at Menace and smiled. You ask why I smile, good man Menace? Well, the Lord Ruler thinks he has claimed laughter and joy for himself. I'm disinclined to let him do so. This is one battle that doesn't take very much effort to fight. You know, I don't... I think that's all right. Um, The specific way that it's framed with, like, the response to these scholars, it's it's a little, like, it's a little pat. Um, But I think the, like, the central image of, like, this sort of badass, sneaky guy who's running around doing all this, like, intense violence... And who's like smiling the whole time? It's kind of cool. Uh, and and I like the idea that he is like, this is uh, this is part of my like rebellion. Um, mm-hmm. I also think it's kind of fun to contrast with a moment from Vin's perspective uh, when she's just had the meeting with the second obligator, who is clearly like setting up a trap for her, and he's agreed to the contract super easily, and they're leaving. The obligator is smiling. And she thinks that that's what tells her that everything is wrong. She's like a happy obligator is always a bad sign. Um, And so there's like, (laughs) there's something going on in this society about who is like literally allowed to be happy and like Mm -hmm. what like happiness means for like the the structures of oppression here. Um, I would assume that Mm -hmm. Vin probably almost never smiles. You know, that hasn't been stated, but, but I think we can probably imagine that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I bet she's going to learn how to laugh a little bit. And like, is that cheesy? Maybe, but I think it's going to be fun. Maybe yeah. by the end of this book, Vin will know how to live, laugh, love. <laughs> uh, no. I'm glaring at you. I'm just thinking now about like, I'm thinking now about like a uh, uh, cheesy, like target home furnishings, Kelsier. I'm picturing Kelsier with like a uh, world. <laughs> So Kelsier has Autumn's mugs. Yeah, Kel- yeah, I was picturing Kelsier with a world's best misting <laughs> mug. I don't know what a misting is yet, but... Um, there's also um, Smoker. Yeah, there's... And Kelsier's mm. like, what? We need a- we're down a smoker now. We need a new smoker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I kind of assume, and, and like, because I know there's these different alimantic metals, and I know that different mm-hmm. ones allow different powers. This is, you know, I kind of know this from, like, general cultural osmosis, but I also think it's actually pretty clear from, like, the way that Kelsier talks about using these powers. Um, And I assume that what's going on here is Kelsier wants a team with at least one guy who is skilled at or capable of using each of these powers. Um, Because they Mm -hmm. mention, they mention a a smoker, um, they mention, like, a a tinai, is that one? Um, yes. mm-hmm. they mention a couple different things and they're capitalized and so it's like alright these are probably it, it's also possible that these are just literally like different capabilities on a thieves crew and not like magic stuff it could literally be like the way that you know you've got to have the hacker you've got to have the lockpick the face etc etc maybe that's what those are like the 
the guy on the crew who is the face is not the only guy with a face. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how much these these uh, roles. We'll, we'll see what mm-hmm. these roles actually mean. But my current assumption is that they track to different like uh, alimantic capabilities. Um, mm-hmm. I'm excited to read more, Miss Bourne. Me too. I'm excited. Let's see. Here's some things I'm excited for. In the immediate future is Chase with Kelsier and uh, the Steel Inquisitor. Just in general, stuff with the Steel Inquisitors and, um, you know, the uh, the Obligators, the Prelins. I, I love a good evil yeah. priesthood. That's that's good stuff. And I think I think that's something Brandon is good at. <laughs> um, I'm fascinated to see how the, the class structure of this society shakes out, um, as I've talked about extensively. Um, I'm really interested for when we meet Reen, or when we find out how Reen died. Because I assume that either Reen is alive, and he's going to come back, and it's going to be fucked up mm-hmm. for Vin. Or he's dead, and learning about how he died is going to be fucked up for Vin. And that may not happen in this book. That could be a longer term thing, but I'm excited for it whenever it takes place. Um, yeah. Uh, <sighs> yeah. Oh, also excited to continue reading these little... Um, interstitial things uh a diary of like a an emperor to be if my theory about who this guy is is correct that's also something i'm into um yeah yeah um there's a lot of other things that you're interested in mark and sometimes you talk about them into a microphone (laughs) Uh, if somebody wanted to hear that where would they go uh you can follow me on twitter at char asnablunt and you can check out my other podcast, Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, which is a podcast about Moby Dick uh, at abnormalmapping.com slash whale. Uh, we are getting super, super close to the end of the book. Um, God, we should probably um, solicit questions. Uh, I'll think about that later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, Moby Dick is a absolutely fantastic novel and um i yeah it's it's a great book we're getting almost done with it goes for my podcast (laughs) (laughs) autumn where can people find you online uh you find me on twitter at autumnal underscore coffee you can uh listen to all my other podcasts by going to exportaud.io you should listen to Bag End Book Club, a podcast we're recording later today. You're smelling that book. Yeah. <laughs> do you have like <laughs> a, a thing do, do you have like an uh, like an old used copy of Lord of the Rings or something? I do actually. I have the the copy with the very first uh movie um still from before the movie actually came out, which is the Ringwraith um on the hill with the light behind it. Um, I believe my printing is actually from 1999, before the movie nice. actually came out. Mm-hmm. And it does smell. It smells like an old book. Nice. That's fine. Yes. Uh, I was actually smelling Mistborn, though. Because <laughs> 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 it does... Does it smell like Kelsier's feet? <laughs> <laughs> He's we... barefoot in Fortnite for some reason. You know his yeah. feet smell disgusting. The floor... The floor. The ground everywhere is coated with a thick layer of horrible ash. Oh, I mean, let's be let's be real. Let's be real. Ash is ash. Uh huh. Okay. 
What are you? I don't know that Ash can be more horrible or less horrible. It's just Ash. I mean, I think it could be more horrible. Ash from so like Ash from things that smell bad when they burn, like like hair or like bone, also smells bad. Smells worse than like wood ash. And yeah. I don't know what this ash that falls from the sky is, but I assume it's fucked up. So, um. Googling how fucked up the, is the um, ash in this world. We, we do know where the ash comes from as of the prologue um, because they mentioned the, the ash mounts. The ash mounts. Okay, I just mean I don't know like what it's made of. Like I don't know what has burned yeah. to produce this ash. I couldn't tell you. But um, you can follow me on Twitter at neither Nora. I will never give you fire facts <laughs> on, on that Twitter account. Uh, I will, however, post Graz. You can listen to my other podcasts on this podcast network, including Back to the Ark, my Marble Hornets podcast, which is a very fast-paced horror podcast, uh, exclusive to the Patreon at patreon.com slash exportaudio or exportaud.io. By giving us any amount of money on the Patreon, you will also get these episodes of this podcast a week early. And um, that's just fun for you. If you like, you know, Brandon. Um, also listen to Attention Duelist, my Yu-Gi-Oh! podcast. We're almost done with Yu-Gi-Oh! And then we're going to move on and watch Yu-Gi-Oh! I love Yu-Gi-Oh! Yeah, we've almost finished with the 1998 anime called Yu-Gi-Oh! And soon we will be starting the, like, 2000 something uh more much more popular anime known in the states as Yu-Gi-Oh. Uh, known in oh, elsewhere as Yu-Gi-Oh Duel Monsters. I do not care about Yu-Gi-Oh, but I do really enjoy the touch of the list. It's a good podcast. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. Cuz Yu-Gi-Oh is a wild show. We are so excited to get into regular ass Yu-Gi-Oh that everyone remembers because that dub is just really funny. <laughs> That's it for plugs. That's it for the podcast. Thanks, Brandon. You know what? Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon.